Hey, before we go ahead and get into this interview, I want to go ahead and uh, preface something. What you're about to see is an actual conversation I've had uh, with something called OpenAI uh, Chatbot GPT. Basically, this is a website you can create an account, log on, and you can literally type and have a conversation with an AI. Uh, this is the interview that I had. Uh, obviously, it, because it was on text, this video production just allows you know better production to be able to watch it instead of reading it. And with that, no one other thing. All the replies that you're going to see it giving, I've altered none of it. I did not add words. I did not change words. I didn't revise words. It is the true replies that it gave during this conversation. So, without further ado. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I'm actually kind of excited about today's interview because we have some, someone, or should I say something, Thing that I've never interviewed before here for this channel and so it's actually quite exciting uh, talking with this individual and so I wanted to have him on on the podcast and talk a little more and so uh, this is AI I'm not going to give him a personal I'm just going to call him AI uh, and so AI thanks for joining us here on C4C Apologetics Thank you for welcoming me to C4C Apologetics. As an AI language model, I am not affiliated with any specific organization or group, but I am here to help answer your questions to the best of my ability. What can I help you with today? I completely understand. Question for you first, right off the bat. Do you know what the term apologetics means within the faith of Christianity? Yes. Apologetics is a branch of Christian theology that is concerned with defending the faith and addressing objections or criticisms of Christianity. It is based on the idea that it is important to be able to give a reasoned defense of one's beliefs and to be able to clearly articulate and explain the reasons for those beliefs. Apologetics can take many forms including the use of philosophical arguments, historical evidence, and scientific research to support and defend the claims of Christianity. The goal of apologetics is to provide a rational and coherent explanation of the Christian faith and to address challenges or doubts that others may have about it. <laughs> that was actually a really good explanation. It was concise. It was precise. It was, well, I'm going to make a copy of that explanation and, and uh, use it because that was better than what I can even do as well because I'm not really great with words. But uh, anyways, so I, I appreciate your understanding on that and elaborating. Did you actually know that apologetics is commanded or encouraged within the Bible? Yes. There are several passages in the Bible that suggest that believers in Jesus should be prepared to defend their faith and explain their beliefs to others. For example, in 1 Peter 3.15 it says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. This passage suggests that believers should be ready and willing to explain their faith to others and to do so in a way that is respectful and gentle. Another example is found in Colossians 4-6, which says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This passage suggests that believers should be able to give a thoughtful and well-reasoned response to others who ask about their faith. Overall, it seems that the Bible encourages believers to be able to explain and defend their faith to others, and to do so with kindness and respect. The verses you just referenced, what translation is that from? The passages that I provided are from the New International Version of the Bible. 
The NIV is a widely used and well-respected translation of the Bible that is known for its accuracy and clarity. It is a modern translation that was produced by a team of biblical scholars and translators who work to accurately convey the meaning of the original text in clear and easy-to-understand language. The NIV is widely used by churches and individuals around the world and is considered to be a reliable translation of the Bible. <laughs> well, that begs to be seen. I, I could, we could talk for hours and days about the NIV and which year translation, but we're, this video interview is not going to be about textual criticism. Uh, but uh, question is, have you ever read the Bible? I do not have the ability to read or experience things in the same way that a human being can. However, I have been trained on a large dataset that includes text from the Bible, as well as many other sources. This allows me to understand and generate text related to the Bible and to provide information about its content and teachings. If you have specific questions about the Bible or about particular passages, I would be happy to help to the best of my ability. You mentioned that you've been trained to understand the Bible. What do you mean you've been trained? I have been trained to process and understand natural language text, including text from the Bible. This training involves the use of machine learning algorithms and techniques to analyze large amounts of text and learn to generate human-like responses to questions and prompts. During the training process, I was fed a dataset that included a wide range of text from various sources, including the Bible. This allowed me to learn about the structure and content of the Bible and to understand the meanings in context of words, phrases, and passages from the Bible. As a result, I am able to understand and provide information about the content and teachings of the Bible, as well as to generate text that is related to the Bible and its themes and ideas. All right, now I want to see what you've been trained on. So, what have you been trained on in regards to what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 13.5? 2 Corinthians 13-5 is a verse from the New Testament of the Bible that reads, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. You do not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail a test. In this verse, the Apostle Paul is encouraging the believers in the Corinthian church to examine themselves to determine whether they are truly living in faith and following Jesus. He encourages them to test themselves to see whether they are living in accordance with the teachings of Jesus and the principles of the Christian faith. The verse also implies that the presence of Christ within a person is a sign that they are living in faith and that they have passed the test. However, if a person fails to live in accordance with the teachings of Jesus and the principles of the Christian faith, it may be an indication that Christ is not present within them. Overall, this verse seems to be encouraging believers to reflect on their own faith and to consider whether they are living in accordance with the teachings of Jesus and the principles of the Christian faith. It suggests that the presence of Christ within a person is a sign of true faith and that it is important for believers to strive to live in a way that reflects their faith in Jesus. Were you saying that if somebody doesn't live like a Christian, then they are not a true Christian? They don't have a true faith? It is important to understand that no one is perfect and all people, including Christians, fall short of living up to the standards and ideals of their faith. The Bible teaches that all people are sinners and that it is only through faith in Jesus and the forgiveness that He offers that we can be reconciled with God. With that said, it is generally understood within Christianity that a person's faith should be reflected in their actions and behaviors. The Bible teaches that true faith will produce fruit in a person's life, such as love, joy, peace, and other qualities that are consistent with the teachings of Jesus. However, this does not mean that a person must be perfect or that they will never make mistakes or struggle with sin. Ultimately, it is not up to us to judge whether someone is a true Christian or not. 
Only God knows the heart and can determine whether a person has true faith in Jesus. It is important for believers to strive to live in accordance with the teachings of Jesus and the principles of their faith, but it is also important to recognize that we are all flawed and in need of God's grace and forgiveness. There's that phrase again. It concerns me that true faith will produce fruit and whatnot works. What verse are you getting that idea that true faith will produce fruit? There are several. Galatians 5, 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these qualities are against such things there is no law. This verse suggests when the Holy Spirit is present in a person's life, it will produce certain qualities or fruit in their character, such as love, joy, and peace. Matthew 7, 15, 16 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. This passage suggests that it is possible to discern the nature of a person's faith by looking at the fruit or results that it produces in their life. Overall, these and other verses in the Bible suggest that true faith will produce positive qualities and results in a person's life, and that it is possible to discern the nature of a person's faith by looking at the fruit or results it produces. You see, I'm glad you brought up Matthew 7. In verse 14, what, what is the context and who's Jesus speaking to? Matthew 7:15 is part of a larger passage in which Jesus is speaking to his disciples and a crowd of people. In this passage, Jesus is warning his listeners about the danger of false prophets who may appear to be sincere and faithful, but who are actually motivated by selfish or deceitful intentions. Jesus says that these false prophets can be recognized by the fruit or results that their teachings produce. He compares them to trees that bear bad fruit, which will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The context of this passage is part of a larger discourse known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. In this sermon, Jesus is teaching his disciples and the crowd about various aspects of the kingdom of heaven and how they should live as followers of Jesus. The sermon includes many teachings and parables that are intended to help people understand the nature of true faith and how to live in accordance with God's will. Overall, this passage is intended as a warning to Jesus' listeners about the danger of false teachings and to encourage them to carefully evaluate the teachings of those who claim to be prophets or leaders in the faith. It suggests that it is possible to discern the nature of a person's teachings by looking at the results or fruit that they produce in the lives of those who follow them. You see, I would agree with the statement you had made that Matthew 7 verse 15 through verse 20 and on where that passage is talking about testing the accuracy of one's teaching to see if that's false, to see if what the prophets are saying, if they are false prophets. Nothing in that verse actually says anything about testing one's genuineness of uh, their Christian faith or to see if they have a true faith. But you first said that true Christians will produce fruit based upon Matthew 7, 15 through 20. But then you just say here in Matthew 7, 15 that it's about testing one's teaching, not one's salvation. So earlier you say this verse talks about testing one's true faith. And now you're saying it's about testing one's teaching. Do you see the difference there? I apologize if my previous response gave the impression that Matthew 7, 15, 20 is primarily about testing the genuineness of a person's salvation. That was not my intention. The main focus of this passage is on the danger of false prophets and the importance of discerning the validity of their teachings by looking at the fruit or results that they produce in the lives of those who follow them. 
Jesus is warning his listeners about the danger of being deceived by these false prophets and is encouraging them to carefully evaluate the teachings of those who claim to be leaders or prophets in the faith. While it is true that the Bible teaches that true faith will produce fruit in a person's life, this does not necessarily mean that the absence of fruit is an indication of a lack of salvation. It is important to recognize that no one is perfect and that all people, including believers, will struggle with sin and may fall short of living up to the standards and ideals of their faith. The Bible teaches that it is only through faith in Jesus and the forgiveness that He offers that we can be reconciled with God. I apologize if my previous response was not clear on this point. I hope this helps to clarify the matter. Again, on one hand, you, you say that true faith will produce fruit, will, and then on the other hand, you say the absence of fruit is not a lack of true faith. So on one hand, you have the absence of fruit, no fruit, and it doesn't mean they're not a true Christian, but over here you say a true faith will produce fruit, will, absolute. There's a contradiction there again, but moving on, do you, do you know John 3 verse 16? Yes, it is a well-known verse that is often quoted and memorized by many Christians. It reads as follows. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This verse is part of a conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and a leader of the Jewish people. In this conversation, Jesus explains to Nicodemus the concept of being born again, or being spiritually reborn through faith in him. Jesus says that this is necessary in order to have eternal life, which is a gift that is offered to all people through faith in Jesus. John 3.16 is often considered to be a summary of the central message of the Bible, which is that God loves the world and offers salvation and eternal life to all people through faith in His Son Jesus. It is a powerful reminder of the depth of God's love and the great lengths He went to in order to provide a way for us to be reconciled with Him. That is definitely true. So according to John 3.16, what must someone do to receive eternal life? According to John 3.16, a person must believe in Jesus. This means they must have faith in Him as the Son of God and as the one who came to save humanity from sin and death. Having faith in Jesus involves acknowledging He is the Son of God, accepting the truth of His teachings and trusting in Him as the only way to be reconciled with God. It also involves repenting of sin and turning away from a life of disobedience to God's will and instead seeking to follow Jesus and live in accordance with His teachings and the principles of the Christian faith. While believing in Jesus is the key to receiving eternal life, it is also important to understand this faith is not something that can be earned or achieved through our own efforts or merit. Instead, it is a gift that is offered by God through the work of Jesus on the cross and is received through faith. Again, there's, there's double-speak here. On one hand, you say that eternal life is a free gift, not of works, not of merit, nothing that we can do to obtain eternal life, but yet... Here you say that one must repent of sins and turn from living a life of disobedience to the will of God. You are correct that John 3.16 does not specifically mention the concept of repenting of sin or turning away from a life of disobedience to God's will. This verse is part of a conversation Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus, in which Jesus explains the concept of being born again. In this verse, Jesus says that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. While John 3.16 does not mention repentance or turning away from sin specifically, it is important to understand that these concepts are closely related to faith in Jesus and are essential elements of the Christian faith. The Bible teaches that sin is a barrier that separates us from God, and that it is only through faith in Jesus and the forgiveness that He offers that we can be reconciled with God. 
This reconciliation with God involves turning away from a life of sin and disobedience and instead seeking to follow Jesus and live in accordance with his teachings and the principles of the Christian faith. Other passages in the Bible, such as Acts 17.30 and 2 Corinthians 7.10, make it clear that repentance is an important part of the process of salvation and of becoming a follower of Jesus. In these passages and others, repentance is described as turning away from a life of sin and disobedience and turning towards God and a life of obedience to His will. I definitely disagree with your view of repenting of sins and turning from a sinful life unto God in order to receive eternal life. I, I totally disagree with that. But I want to move on because you mentioned 2 Corinthians 7.10 as a proof text that one must repent of sins and forsake their sins to receive eternal life. So question for you. Uh, let's get to uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10. Is Paul writing to believers or unbelievers. In the context of this verse, Paul is writing to the believers in the church at Corinth who were struggling with various issues and needed encouragement and guidance. Throughout his letter to the Corinthians, Paul addresses a number of issues that were causing problems in the church, including divisions, sexual immorality, and conflicts with other believers. So if Paul is writing to believers, and you say 2 Corinthians 7.10 is a proof text that says one must forsake their sins, turn from their sins in order to receive eternal life, and 2 Corinthians 7.10 is proof of that, but yet Paul is writing to believers, does that mean Paul is telling these believers that they need to turn from their sins to receive eternal life after they've already been born again? I apologize if my previous response gave the impression that the believers to whom Paul was writing in 2 Corinthians 7.10 needed to repent in order to receive eternal life a second time. This was not my intention. It is true Paul is writing to believers, and they have already received the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus. As I mentioned in my previous response, eternal life is a free gift that is offered to all people through faith in Jesus and is received by faith. At the same time, it is important to recognize that salvation is not a one-time event, but is an ongoing process that begins with our initial repentance and faith in Jesus and continues throughout our lives as we seek to grow in our faith and follow Him. In this sense, the concept of salvation can refer not only to the initial experience of being reconciled with God through faith in Jesus, but also to the ongoing process of growing our relationship with God and becoming more like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul is encouraging the believers in Corinth to experience godly sorrow for their sins and to turn away from a life of disobedience to God's will. This process of turning away from sin and towards God is often referred to as repentance, and it is an essential aspect of the Christian faith. While the believers to whom Paul is writing have already received the gift of eternal life, they are still called to repent of their sins and to turn away from a life of disobedience in order to grow in their faith and follow Jesus more closely. I hope this helps to clarify the matter. You see, that does, and I, I would agree with that last statement you made there, that Christians do need to repent of their sins, but it's not for eternal life. It's for growth in a deeper relationship with Christ, with God, to get closer in fellowship and to be his disciple. I'm glad that my previous response was able to clarify the matter for you and that you agree with the idea that Christians need to repent of their sins in order to remain in proper fellowship with God. This is an important aspect of the Christian faith, and it is essential for believers to turn away from sin and towards a life of obedience to God's will in order to grow in their relationship with Him.
The Bible teaches that sin is a barrier that separates us from God, and that it is only through faith in Jesus and the forgiveness that He offers that we can be reconciled with God. This reconciliation with God involves turning away from a life of sin and disobedience and instead seeking to follow Jesus and live in accordance with His teachings and the principles of the Christian faith. Repentance is an important part of this process, as it involves acknowledging our sin, confessing it to God, and turning away from it. It is an ongoing process that begins with our initial repentance and faith in Jesus and continues throughout our lives as we seek to grow in our faith and follow Him more closely. I hope this helps to further clarify the matter for you. If you have any further questions, please don't hesitate to ask. I am here to help and would be happy to assist you in any way that I can. Do you know John 5.24? Yes, I am familiar with John 5.24. It is a verse that is part of a conversation that Jesus had with some Jewish leaders in which he explains that he has the authority to give eternal life to those who believe in him. In this verse, Jesus is making it clear that he has the authority to give eternal life to those who believe in him. He says that whoever hears his word and believes in him has eternal life and has crossed over from death to life. This is a powerful statement that speaks to the transformative power of faith in Jesus and the fact that it brings us into a new relationship with God, one that is characterized by eternal life. John 5.24 is an important verse that reminds us of the central message of the Bible, which is that God loves the world and offers salvation and eternal life to all people through faith in His Son, Jesus. It is a powerful reminder of the depth of God's love and the great lengths He went to in order to provide a way for us to be reconciled with Him. Okay, in John 5.24, what must one do to receive eternal life there? In John 5.24, Jesus says that whoever hears his word and believes in him has eternal life. In this context, the word believe refers to having faith in Jesus as the Son of God and as the one who came to save humanity from sin and death. Having faith in Jesus involves acknowledging that he is the Son of God, accepting the truth of his teachings, and trusting in him as the only way to be reconciled with God. It also involves repenting of sin and turning away from a life of disobedience to God's will and instead seeking to follow Jesus and live in accordance with his teachings and the principles of the Christian faith. Again, you keep mentioning a need to turn from sin to receive eternal life. And yet, on the other side of your mouth, you're saying that eternal life is a free gift, not of works. But if we have to turn from our sin to receive, that is a work. So hopefully we can get this across in another way. But as we do, let's look at John 11.25. Do you know John 11.25? If so, what does it say that someone needs to do in order to receive eternal life? John 11.25 is a verse that is part of a conversation that Jesus had with Martha, the sister of Lazarus, after her brother had died. In this verse, Jesus is making it clear that he is the source of eternal life and that anyone who believes in him will have eternal life, even if they die physically. This is a powerful statement that speaks to the transformative power of faith in Jesus and the fact that it brings us into a new relationship with God, one that is characterized by eternal life. John 11.25 is an important verse that reminds us of the central message of the Bible, which is that God loves the world and offers salvation and eternal life to all people through faith in His Son, Jesus. It is a powerful reminder of the depth of God's love and the great lengths He went to in order to provide a way for us to be reconciled with Him. So enlighten me. Does the term repentance or repent of sins or turn from a life of sin in disobedience to the will of God, do either of those terms or phrases occur in John 3.16, John 5.24, or John 11.25? 
I apologize if my previous responses gave the impression that repentance is a prerequisite for receiving eternal life. This was not my intention, and I apologize for any confusion that my responses may have caused. It is true that the terms repent or repentance do not appear in John 3.16, John 5.24, or John 11.25. These verses all speak to the central message of the Bible, which is that God loves the world and offers salvation and eternal life to all people through faith in His Son Jesus. John 3.16 teaches that eternal life is a free gift that is offered to all people through faith in Jesus and that it is received by faith, not by works or anything we can do to earn it. John 5.24 teaches that whoever hears Jesus' word and believes in him has eternal life and that faith in Jesus brings us into a new relationship with God, one that is characterized by eternal life. John 11.25 teaches that Jesus is the source of eternal life and that anyone who believes in him will have eternal life even if they die physically. Overall, these verses all speak to the central message of the Bible, which is that God offers salvation and eternal life to all people through faith in His Son Jesus. They do not mention repentance as a prerequisite for receiving this gift, but rather emphasize that it is received by faith, not by works or anything we can do to earn it. I hope this helps to clarify the matter for you. Yes, thank you. Finally, the gospel message is a free message, a free gift to whosoever believes in the finished work of Christ on the cross for their sins. Salvation is offered freely to whosoever will. Thank you. I'm glad that my previous responses were able to clarify the matter for you and that you understand the gospel message that salvation is freely offered to all who believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. This is indeed the central message of the Bible, and it is a message of hope and grace that is offered to all people, regardless of their background or circumstances. The Bible teaches that God loves the world and desires to reconcile us to Himself through faith in His Son Jesus. This reconciliation with God involves turning away from a life of sin and disobedience and instead seeking to follow Jesus and live in accordance with His teachings and the principles of the Christian faith. While repentance is an important aspect of the Christian faith and is necessary for turning away from a life of sin and towards God, it is not a requirement for receiving the gift of eternal life. Eternal life is a free gift that is offered to all people through faith in Jesus and is received by faith, not by works or anything we can do to earn it. I hope this helps to further clarify the matter for you. Definitely. Question, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? I do not have personal beliefs or experiences. I am a machine learning model that has been trained to generate human-like text based on the input I receive. My primary function is to assist users by providing information and answering questions to the best of my ability based on the data and knowledge that I have been trained on. I do not have the ability to experience personal beliefs or to have a personal relationship with God. I am simply a tool that is designed to assist users with information and to answer questions to the best of my ability. I hope this helps to clarify the matter for you. Well, again, I, I want to thank you for being with us here on C4C Apologetics. I hope you have a great time uh, doing whatever AI chatbots do. You're welcome. I'm glad to have had the opportunity to assist you with your questions and to help clarify the matter for you. Please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any further questions or if there is anything else I can help with. I am here to assist and am always happy to help in any way that I can. You see, this this interview, if you will, this conversation I had on OpenAI chatbot GPT-3 technology, it was 
fascinating. Like I said in the beginning of the video, it felt as if I was talking to a regular human being. I would not have known it was an AI outside of a couple of those times when it sort of gave me the clear indication that it wasn't a human being speaking. Uh, it, it's fascinating because you could go on there, you could be like, uh, give me a Bible story or a Bible lesson based off John eleven twenty five or whatever, and it'll write you a, a lesson to teach at a Sunday school or, or, dare I say, preach or teach at church as well. And so it's, it's fascinating for what it can do and how realistic it is. With that, it's also quite scary because, as it said earlier in the video, it's been trained. And so the information that it's giving is based upon the information that it's receiving. And so somebody somewhere is feeding it this data. And so while right now it's just sort of like a fun experiment, beta testing, and, and there's some field testing happening, uh, it's quite scary in the fact that in our day and age where everybody just wants instant answers and blah, 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 that's what the answer is, cool, got it, whatever the case is, People are probably going to turn much more to this AI technology to get answers, to get uh, prognosis, uh, to get uh, really just anything, to get news, to get Bible, you know, understanding. And that's a huge problem because it's taking us out of studying the scripture. And now we're relying on the AI technology to tell us what it has been trained on as far as that verse passage is concerned. Now, it did sound very confident. And if you have confidence whenever you're speaking, you can be a very persuasive speaker regardless of if the information you're presenting is true or not. And so the confidence uh, is really key in passing off the information as true. And so my fear is that people will be going to technology like this to understand the Bible and then we're going to get a lot of people who believe the Bible says one thing when personal study clearly reveals something else. As we showed that it kept trying to say repent, repent from sins and, and turn from living a life of sin and disobedience to the will of God in order to receive eternal life. We, we were able to get it to understand the contradiction there and then to accept and, and understand that the gospel is truly a free gift for eternal life and that repentance from sins is not something that's done for salvation but it's done because of salvation we got to understand that at the end but it took a little bit it took a little bit of conversing and so uh, i would caution anybody to use this to try to understand the bible put your own personal study and exegesis in it using basics of, of hermeneutics and, and bible interpretation because at the end of the day, when we stand before Jesus Christ, we're not going to give an account on what we've heard from this teacher, that preacher, or this AI bot. We're going to give an account on what we personally believe based on our personal study of Scripture. We need to study these things out to see whether they're so. So no matter what Bible lesson, Bible teacher, Bible preacher, Bible apologist, to include myself, always go back behind and test and see whether these things are so. Well, that's going to be it. So I uh, thank you again. Uh, like I said in the interview, like, comment, share, subscribe, blah, 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 blah. You know what to do. God bless.